my my concern today is that uh, the military, you know, I hope the military is not going to repeat the mistake that it made after Vietnam of imagining that just because we didn't like one of these wars, whether it was Vietnam or Iraq, that we can just kind of go back to preparing to fight uh, peer competitors and not worry about this, this low-intensity conflict. Even if you think about how countries like Russia, Iran, or, or, or China are going to contest our, our military supremacy, most of what they do is not going to be in head-on-head operations. Uh, nobody is eager, you know, to, uh, to fight, uh, you know, the Battle of Leyte Gulf against us or, uh, you know, to fight the Battle of 73 Easting. Hey, welcome back to another episode of the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI, and in this episode, I sat down to talk with Max Boot. Max is, as most listeners will know, a best-selling author, a renowned historian, and really a very keen observer of the world. In this episode, he explains why he thinks there's a risk that the U.S. military will repeat the mistakes it made after the Vietnam War, when it almost deliberately forgot the lessons it learned about counterinsurgency and political warfare. He also gives his assessment of the current situation in Syria and Ukraine, and discusses the really broad range of ways that... As he argues, the U.S.-led international order is under threat. It's a great discussion that I really enjoyed recording and I hope you enjoyed listening to. But before we get into it, really quickly, a couple notes. First, if you're not already doing so, remember you can follow MWI on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. It's a really easy way to stay up to date on all of the new articles, podcast episodes, and research we're publishing every day. And second, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with Max Boot. Max, thanks very much for for sitting down and and, uh, having a conversation with us for the Modern War Institute podcast. Um, I think a lot of us... uh, who have served in, in in the military and the army specifically over the past 15 years um, know of a couple of your books you know pick them up in advance I know I did in advance of our first deployment to try to kind of wrap our heads around this thing this counterinsurgency thing um, you've written a lot about that we call them small wars sometimes uh, I wonder if you could kind of talk about um, maybe contextualize our emphasis over the past 15 years on stability operations, um, counterinsurgency, if you can kind of contextualize that historically, um, are the, were these sort of a break from the past and, and, and are we now seeing kind of an end to this period of time where we we're looking at these kind of thorny little wars? Well, first, uh, thanks for having me, and I'm very glad you're doing this because I think it's, you know, the kind of intellectual development you're trying to foster, I think, is incredibly important, and that's what sets the condition for victory on future battlefields. I mean, in terms of our uh, historical experience with small wars or guerrilla wars or insurgencies or whatever you want to call them, uh, I would say there's pretty much nothing new under the sun. I mean, this has been a a constant uh, fact of military history since the dawn of time. It's been a constant fact uh, for the United States since the creation of the uh, U.S. Army and even before that, when you think about the uh, colonial militias fighting Indian fighters who were premier guerrilla warriors of their day. Uh, so I, you know, I think uh, it's it's if you look at this at, at the at the scope of our history, I think what you very quickly see is that the handful of major conventional wars 
are the exception in, in low insurgency brush fire type wars. That is the norm. And so uh, it's not going away. And my, my concern today is that uh, the military, you know, I hope the military is not going to repeat the mistake that it made after Vietnam of imagining that just because we didn't like one of these wars, whether it was Vietnam or Iraq, that we can just kind of go back to preparing to fight uh, peer competitors and not worry about this this low-intensity conflict because, as I say, it ain't going away. Uh, this is, this is going to be the predominant threat that we face in the future, just as it has been in the past. You know, if, if you make that case in 2006, 2007, um, hey, these are... Uh, a, a common feature throughout history, certainly our own American military history. Um, I would imagine that you, that, that argument met with a pretty, or that claim met with a pretty receptive audience. Um, now I wonder if you're hearing people kind of say, yeah, 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 we get it still Russia and China, you know, and, and it doesn't matter that these were, you know, common features in our, in our own history, because now we're looking at near peer threats and we need to focus on them. Are people just less receptive to it? No question about it. I mean, if you look at the national defense strategy, uh, you know, I have a lot of respect for Jim Mattis, but if you look at the national defense strategy, it basically says right there that, you know, that uh, insurgency is not our primary threat anymore. We need to think about these rising powers like Russia and China and about rogue states like Iran and North Korea. And I don't really dispute that those are major threats that we need to contend with. But what I would say is, even if you think about how countries like Russia, Iran, or, or, or China are going to contest our, our military supremacy, most of what they do is not going to be in head-on-head operations. Uh, nobody is eager, you know, to, uh, to fight, uh, you know, the Battle of Leyte Gulf against us or, uh, you know, to fight the Battle of 73 Easting. I mean, those are the kind of engagements that those countries know they're going to lose. And so they are increasingly focused on a more asymmetric approach, including uh, a lot of what we might call gray zone warfare or hybrid warfare, uh, essentially ways of doing an in run against American conventional military supremacy. I mean, you see it with the Russians and their little green men uh, in places like Ukraine, their mercenaries in Syria, uh, their use of political warfare to influence the 2016 U.S. election and, uh, and multiple elections in Europe. You see it with the Chinese with their Belt and Road Initiative trying to spread Chinese power uh, throughout their their surrounding region. Uh, I mean, these are the areas that are uh, the most urgent threats uh, to American uh, military power. Uh, and, you know, I, I'm certainly all in favor of maintaining our conventional military edge because if nothing else, that will deter uh, conventional conflicts. But... You know, we can't pretend uh, that there is a great likelihood of a conventional force-on-force engagement, whereas right now we are, you know, in the midst of these low-intensity conflicts uh, all over the world. And do you think we are at risk of um, sort of forgetting, like we did after Vietnam, um, all of the institutional learning that we've gained over, you know, a pretty extended period of time now? I think there's a risk. I mean, I don't know how great the risk is, but I think it's a real risk. And I and I do get concerned when, you know, just having gone around a bunch of military installations in the last few months to talk about my new book. I mean, that has been the dominant message that I'm hearing is that, you know, it's the military is, it wants to get back to, quote unquote, real soldiering. And, you know, 
you know, getting qualified on tanks and artillery and all that kind of stuff. And again, I'm not opposed to any of that. That's fine. But, you know, I, I want to make sure we don't take our eye off the ball, which is not just guerrilla warfare, but also political warfare, you know, and, and then the combination of the two in gray zone or hybrid warfare, whatever you want to call it. I think that's the dominant threat that we face right now. Uh, and, you know, I think part of the reason why we want to focus on more conventional challenges is because they're just easier for us to deal with because we know how to do that. And nobody really knows how to confront this kind of gray zone warfare. And so there's a tendency to throw up our hands in despair. And of course, even if we do confront it, it's not going to be exclusively or even necessarily primarily a, a Pentagon mission. It has to be a whole of government operation, indeed a whole of society operation. But And so that makes it even more difficult. Uh, but you know, just because it's tough doesn't mean that we can ignore it. In fact, that makes it all the more imperative uh, that we focus on it. You have, uh, for past books, you've uh, studied, I think, pretty extensively uh, historical cases of U.S. counterinsurgency and conventional warfare. Um, you're, you mentioned your most recent one, which is about Vietnam. I wonder if there are particular patterns that you've seen sort of replicate now. If you When you look at Vietnam and now you look at our our, our past 15 years really in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, if you're seeing similar trajectories, um, especially if you look at sort of the close of the Vietnam War, if you're seeing any any parallels now? Well, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And I mean, there certainly are are some parallels that, that you can see. I mean, I think one of the big ones is that whether in Vietnam or in the war on terrorism today, uh, we have a tendency to take kind of a narrow kinetic approach to the battle. Uh, I mean, General William S. Moreland for example, thought that he could actually kill the Viet Cong faster than they could be replaced. And Ed Lansdale, the guy that I read about in my book, warned that this was an illusion that was not going to work. The only way to win was to stand up a stable, legitimate, and popular government in Saigon that could command the allegiance of the people, and that advice was ignored. Um, and I fear today it may be ignored again in the war on terrorism where you know, there is a tendency in Washington to, uh, you know, to take a victory lap to say mission accomplished, uh, because we've killed a lot of ISIS fighters. Uh, but, you know, unless we think about what the political instate is in places like Iraq and Syria, these victories are only going to be temporary, and these extremist groups will regenerate uh, pretty rapidly. And so, you know, I think in general we need to think more about how do we achieve the political outcomes that we want. And I think, ironically, that a lot of folks in the military actually are thinking more about that, uh, but it's the politicians in Washington who don't want to hear about it. And what are, um, with with respect specifically to Iraq and Syria, um, what how do you what do you think are that political end state looks like in an ideal world? Well, I don't think th- in the case of Syria, there's no ideal world. It's basically you know what's the least bad option out there, and you know I've kind of given up any hope of a major uh, political settlement anytime soon. Uh, because, you know, the Assad regime with Russian and Iranian backing is on the offensive and they are winning the war. Uh, so what I've argued is that, uh, you know, we, we basically have to give up the hope that we're going to overthrow Assad because that's just is not, gonna, is not in the cards right now. And even if we could overthrow Assad, uh, that it's not clear that there is a, a good alternative to him because, you know, the moderate Syrian opposition has been decimated. And so... You don't want to get rid of Assad and clear the way for a jihadist takeover in, in Damascus. But I, you know, I think the, the least bad thing we can do now, 
is to essentially focus on uh, creating an autonomous zone out of the roughly one-third of Syrian territory that's controlled by the Syrian Democratic Forces with U.S. help. And I think there's a possibility to build up in, you know, a quasi-independent state, as we've already done with the Kurdish region in Iraq, uh, that will serve as a as a moderate bastion in a, a moderate island in a sea of extremism. Uh, and I hope that's an opportunity that we seize because we do seem to have reliable and effective allies on the ground. And I fear that because uh, of this rush for the exits uh, that we may wind up pulling all of our forces out and thereby handing uh, you know, eastern Syria to the Assad regime and the Iranians and the Russians on a silver platter, which you know, I think would be a huge mistake. Uh, and in the case of Iraq, I think, you know, we need to try to stay engaged to try to counter Iranian influence uh, to prevent the uh, institutionalization of the popular mobilization forces, the largely Iranian-backed militia that arose to fight uh, the Islamic State, but are, you know, now left as as power brokers in Baghdad. And I think we need to push for their demobilization. And we need to uh, support Prime Minister Abadi in, in trying to create a more balanced and less sectarian regime to prevent Shiite radicals from being the dominant forces, I fear, will probably be likely. With uh, with respect to in uh, chemical weapons attacks in Syria, there's, you know, we kind of look a couple years back during the Obama administration and the sort of infamous or famous red line. Um, and now we've seen the Trump administration uh, respond twice with strikes after chemical weapons attacks. Uh, and then this debate that came up afterwards about whether or not that was, you know, the right, the right response calibrated properly, um, how it as a tactical strike sort of fits into a broader strategy. I wonder if you have any thoughts on um, how U.S. military force um, can be or should be employed in pursuit of, of, of whatever our strategic objectives should be. Well, I think the first point to make is that, uh, you know, there is not much that we can do uh, at this point to truly ameliorate the suffering of the Syrian people. Uh, you know, we can degrade uh, Bashar Assad's military forces, but that's only going to delay and not end his, his ultimate victory. I do think that we have uh, an independent interest in deterring the use of weapons of mass destruction. And so I think it does make sense to uh, to make Assad pay a price for his use of chemical weapons. But I don't think that the latest strike is a very high price for him to pay, just as I don't think that the April 2017 uh, cruise missile strike was a very high price for him to pay. I think he, he basically shrugs it off uh, because it doesn't really hurt his regime. I think if we really wanted to hurt him, it would have required more than a one-off strike it would have required, you know, multiple days of bombing, probably like Operation Desert Fox against Iraq in 1998. Uh, that would really inflict some damage on his regime. And again, I don't think that would actually, that's not going to bring down his government. It's not going to end the civil war, but at least it would make him pay a significant price. Whereas, you know, firing 100 cruise missiles is not going to make him pay a significant price. Uh, so, you know, I don't think Assad is going to be, or anybody else is really going to be deterred from the use of WMD because of the strike. I think, you know, we're trying to single s signal 
we're trying to single strength and, and to create deterrence. And, and in fact, I think we're, we're showing uh, weakness and, and, and showing that we're not truly serious about uh, punishing and deterring the use of WMD. So if we kind of zoom out from, from, from Syria uh, for a moment, uh, as you kind of survey maybe the threat landscape around the world uh, right now, you know, we've got uh, a very dynamic situation now in North Korea um, with recent developments um, over the past few months, really. Uh, we've got Syria where, you know, Syria looks fundamentally different now and, and, and our interests and the stakes look very different than it did, say, even three years ago, much less six years ago. Um, you've got Russia and Ukraine. Um, what what worries you most? Where do you think we where where do you think we really need to be? Um, our attention needs to be focused, not necessarily for the you know the crisis of today or tomorrow, but really when we look at consequences over the next you know several years or decade. Uh, where do we where do we need to kind of keep our attention? What really worries me the most is, is the internal threat from unwise. Uh, policy making in Washington, whether you know, kind of erratic decision making in the near term, or our failure to deal with longer term issues like the budget crisis, for example, which I think is, I mean, that's really the greatest threat to American power is is the lack of wisdom and and unity in Washington to to address some of these challenges and kind of the the scapegoating and 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 uh, demonization of. Of, of minorities and walking away from our global leadership role that we've played since 1945. I think that's actually, that's actually right there, the biggest threat to, uh, to U.S. interests and power. But if we talk about external enemies, so I think are a real but lesser threat, um, I would say, you know, the big concern for me is political warfare, uh, hybrid, gray zone, asymmetric, whatever you want to call it. There's no great term. Uh, but you know, the way that our enemies uh, try to influence our political system, uh, for example, and, you know, the Russian operation in 2016 is not going to be the end of the story. Others are going to emulate that example and not just the Russians. Uh, these, you know, the, the projecting power through through proxies and covert means, uh, funding political parties, all that kind of stuff, I think, is a, is a major threat, uh, which is not directly addressed by conventional military forces and not really addressed by anybody as far as I can tell. So uh, those are those are issues that I think we need to think about how to how to deal with those. And how do we, you know, with more traditional military threats, um, we have doctrine, we have training, we, we, we sort of know how to harden our defenses against uh, particular threats. If this is, you know, this sort of brave new world, if um, where we're facing threats like that in cyberspace and threats to our democracy, what? How do we go about hardening our defenses against that and making our, sort of our nation more resilient? Well, I don't think there's any any one easy answer. I think it has to be a combination of defense and offense. Uh, I think we certainly need to strengthen our our defenses across the whole of government, indeed the whole of society. Uh, you know, for example, you know there needs to be uh, government monitoring uh, of. Uh, for example, social media attacks, disinformation. We need to, uh, you know, you know, there needs to be greater transparency. I think that social media networks like Twitter and Facebook and others uh, need to be more transparent about what's what's transpiring on their networks. And if they're not willing to do that themselves, then I think you probably need some kind of legislation uh, to force that. I think you need 
uh, alerts about when these things are going on. Uh, you know, hey, you know, the Russians or the Chinese or whoever, this is this is the, what they're trying to message, uh, or you know, this is the political candidate they're trying to support. I think people need to be aware of that. And you know, there's some attempts now by private sector groups to do that, but I think it really needs to be a Department of Homeland Security mission using the resources of the U.S. intelligence community uh, to to publicize what's going on. I think there needs to be you know, education for the citizens and in the classroom uh, in terms of responsible use of, of social media and how to tell fake news from real news, uh, you know, basically to alert people to the to the spread of false information and propaganda. Uh, I mean, there you know, there's some of these things are already being done in countries like Sweden and Italy, and I think we need to think about how to do that ourselves. Um, you know, at the same time, I think, you know, we need to, also utilize our offensive capabilities in this regard because although we are certainly vulnerable as a, as a, as an open democracy to this kind of attack, uh, we can also uh, use these same kind of tactics against countries like Russia, Iran, uh, China, and others uh, to give them a taste of their own medicine and to, you know, uh, to, to wage political warfare against them as they're waging political warfare against us. Um, and so, you know, again, not necessarily primarily a military mission, although they're, they're, I, can, I can see military involvement, but it's something where we need to mobilize the intelligence community, the, the State Department, other agencies of government. And, you know, I just don't think that we have a, a cohesive uh, plan for doing that. One of the, um, it's interesting that you bring that up because I think that, um, you know, offensive campaign planning is not easy, but it's a lot easier than defensive campaign planning because it's natural if you're planning, if you're on the offensive side to plan and link things together, link theaters together, for instance. So Russia can look at Ukraine, it can look at Syria and and naturally link them and, the, you know, um, they can be part of a, a single strategic campaign. Um, defensively, it's a lot more difficult to do that. We tend to, I think, treat Ukraine as one problem set, Syria as one problem set. Um, and I think that that's a function of the fact that vis-a-vis -vis Russia, the U.S. is on the strategic defensive um, in that case. And so it's interesting that you bring that up because Russia hasn't had a dose of its own medicine in that sense and would force them to kind of play defense, which is a much more difficult thing. Um, in Ukraine specifically, you know, it, it strikes me that um, it's almost... It, it, every day it seems like we get closer and closer to a, to a, a, a stalemate sort of status. Um, is that, is that okay? Or, or will it continue to be in us interest to try to break that stalemate and return to sort of the status quo ante? Well, I would be, I think it would be great if we could return the status quo ante because basically, you know, what's happened in Ukraine, I think sets a very worrisome precedent. This is, you know, cross-border aggression and change of borders in Europe by force, something that has not happened uh, since 1945. I mean, the Russians succeeded in annexing Crimea, and they've de facto annexed eastern Ukraine, turning it into uh, this quasi-autonomous republic, essentially controlled by by the Russian government. I think that's, that's a, a very bad precedent. Uh, you know, I don't think we have, I don't think there's any immediate prospect of reversing that by military force on the ground, I don't think the government of Ukraine has the capability to do that. And even if they escalate militarily, the Russians are always going to have military dominance, just a much more powerful country. They can always surge more military forces in there. I think the only way to change 
the facts in Ukraine is to change the situation in, in Moscow. Uh, and, you know, if we can possibly make Putin and his ruling oligarchy pay a greater price for their aggression, for example, by targeting uh, their financial assets in the West, all these properties they own in places like London and bank accounts they have in places like Cyprus and elsewhere, uh, I think you can. that's, that's their real vulnerability. Uh, and, and I think we need to go after that and do what we can. And it's certainly it's uh, our capability is limited in this regard, but do what we can uh, to try to help uh, opposition groups to, to Putin, uh, to try to help Russian dissidents, uh, because, uh, you know, the only way to, you know, the only way things are going to change in places like Ukraine is if there is a different government with a different mindset in Moscow, which, you know, I don't think is out of the realm of possibility, but it's certainly not going to happen anytime soon. And right now, I think the lesson that Putin has taken away is that essentially, uh, you know, aggression pays. And I think that's a that's a very dangerous uh, signal to send to the world. And I might, I might add, by the way, I think we're sending the same signal uh, with our failure to do more to contest the Chinese power grab in the South China Sea, where in controversion in contravention of an international court ruling, they are militarizing and annexing the South China Sea. And again, that kind of reinforces the lesson of Ukraine, which is that you can change borders by force and the United States won't do very much about it. And that is, you know, undermining the basis of the post-1945 world order. So I want to kind of, um, to close out, maybe circle back to where we started. Um, you mentioned that you've been talking to military audiences recently um, about your your new book. You you talked about the the danger of forgetting some of the lessons that we've um, learned at um, at a pretty heavy cost uh, for you know a decade and a half. What advice do you give? Uh, what what is it kind of the single piece of advice that you that you try to give to to keep that from happening? The the single point that I harp on is, you know, let's not forget Clausewitz's dictum about war being the continuation of politics by other means. I mean, we tend to pay lip service to that, but we don't really mean it. And I think we need to understand what that really means is that, you know, ultimately the political line of operations is the decisive one. It's not the military line of operations. And when you think about how we won World War II, sure, it was important that we militarily defeated Germany and Japan, but if we had not undertaken these ambitious nation-building exercises in Germany and Japan, uh, you know, everything we gained on the battlefield could have easily been undermined within a decade or two, just as in fact happened after World War I, where we defeated Germany in 1919, and then 20 years later, uh, they, they started another war. And so I think ultimately, uh, you know, military force can help you to achieve a political solution, but military force and isolation is useless or worse than useless. And so I think, you know, what I've been, what I try to say to military audiences is keep in mind the political objectives that you're fighting for. And you don't have the luxury of saying, you know, we just do, we just, uh, you know, uh, kick down doors and break stuff and somebody else needs to do the cleanup operation because if you're looking for somebody else to do it, you're going to be waiting a long time. There's nobody coming in behind you. I mean, the State Department had little enough capacity as it as it is. And it was devastated under under Secretary Rex Tillerson. It will take a long time to rebuild. So, you know, you need to, the military needs to understand that politics is part of its job too. And that's something that 
Ed Lansdale preached in, in, in the Philippines and Vietnam and was usually ignored. Uh, and I hope that that advice is not ignored in the future because if it is ignored, I don't think we're going to win lasting victories in the war on terror or any place else. Well, Max, thanks very much for, for making some time for us. Like I said, um, really appreciate uh, you sharing some of your thoughts. Thank you for having me. Hey, thanks again for listening to the MWI podcast. Before you go, hopefully you're already subscribed to the MWI podcast. But if not, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please take just a couple quick moments and leave us a rating or give us a review. It really is a huge help in getting the word out to new listeners. All right, thanks again.